We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Romans chapter 15, please. We then who are strong ought to bear with scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for, for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us, to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers and to the Gentiles, might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles, and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points, as reminding you, because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glorify in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, and so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom 
he has not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you, but now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you. If first, I may enjoy your company for a while, but now I am going to Jerusalem uh, to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of the spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God, and may be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Tonight I wanted to... Uh speak not from a text per se, but from several texts, and uh, as I mentioned this morning, my message is titled, The Marvel of Forgiveness. Uh, we rejoice in God because of the forgiveness that he offers to us, and I thought I'd take this opportunity around the table to just extol that, and, and the purpose tonight is to glorify God by extolling the truth and the virtues, the glories of his forgiveness. And I, I hope it will help us to remember the Lord in an honoring way tonight. Uh, he died to secure, among many other things, eternal forgiveness for our sins, for really what we could call the capital offenses that we have done against the Most High God. So I start by just reminding us of the meaning of forgiveness. What does it mean to forgive? And uh, if you just look that up in uh, your favorite online dictionary, you might find something like this. It's, uh, it says in this one that I picked up, uh, it means, forgiveness means to stop feeling angry or resentful towards someone for a mistake or a flaw or uh, an offense. And I further found that uh, psychologists, uh, I'm reading a quote here that's footnoted in my notes. I actually don't have those online. Sorry for those of you that are viewing. Um, I'll hopefully get those up, these up later. But uh, it says in this particular one, psychologists generally define forgiveness as a conscious, deliberate decision to release feelings of resentment or vengeance toward a person or group who has harmed you, regardless of whether they actually deserve your forgiveness. And uh, they go on to say, it doesn't mean denying or condoning an offense or excusing it or merely forgetting it. <clears throat> Those definitions lack a little something theologically, and I'll mention that in a moment. But sometimes the question comes up too, like, what about forgiving yourself? Have you ever heard people talk about that, forgiving yourself? 
Today, this idea of forgiving oneself revolves rather around self-love and self-respect despite wrongdoing, uh, having feelings of goodwill towards oneself instead of ill will towards oneself. Notice that in all of these definitions that I've just shared, there is a center kind of focus around which they revolve, and that is the feelings of the person that is uh, at issue, whether it's the person offended from an exterior source or it's the person who feels offended by their own conduct. And uh, unfortunately, you know, when, when, when forgiveness revolves around yourself and your own feelings, you're omitting the most important party in the whole matter, which has to do with God, of course, and the wrongdoing that uh, we do is ultimately toward Him, as we know. Now, what constitutes wrongdoing in the above feelings-based definitions is unclear, at least on the premises used by most postmodern and neo-pagan type people, um, where many evils are excused as not a big deal or they're even promoted as moral goods. You know that today, right? Evil things are promoted as good, and good when we demand a a certain standard of godliness, that's called bad because it harms people's feelings and it makes them feel uh, triggered or offended or whatever. So, um, you know, with a, a shifting standard of what constitutes a transgression, there are many people who do not feel the need for forgiveness because they don't feel they've done anything wrong. They've done things that are wrong, but they don't feel like they have done things that are wrong. But yet people still have this, are dogged by this idea that at times they do do things that are wrong or offensive to a person they love or they've caused somebody else harm or something. And there are expressions of that all around us, concern about our, uh, the way that, you know, we are as one group of people versus another group of people and and that sort of thing. Um, And of course, you know, Person A who commits an offense against person B, you know, A may not feel that they've actually done anything needing forgiveness. B might beg to differ if they feel the the weight of the wrongdoing upon themselves. Another definition of the word in English is, is getting a little better, is to cancel a debt. It's more objective rather than the subjective feelings-based kind of definitions that we've looked at here from psychology or human wisdom. But in, in Greek, a word that's commonly used for forgiveness is, and I'll give you the Greek word, it's aphitemi. Aphitemi. That doesn't mean anything to you and it doesn't have to, but here's how it's used in the New Testament. It means to release from a legal or moral obligation. And we're getting to the kind of center of what forgiveness is, a legal or moral, or I'd rather sometimes say an ethical obligation or, or consequence. Of, of something done wrong. It's to cancel a debt. It's to remit a sin. It's to pardon a wrongdoing. And it's this definition, which is uh, from our, our standard Greek dictionary, is much more closely connected to the scriptural teaching on the matter. <clears throat> you know, and I want, let me make a note at this point about the idea of forgiveness in terms of the type of obligation that we have to God. So we've said that Forgiveness has to do with releasing from legal or ethical obligation or consequence. And, of course, first of all, we're focusing on God releasing people from uh, ethical or moral consequences of sin. 
And uh, when we have that situation in which we sin against God, we're not talking about a debt in terms of finances. I don't want us to think about this in terms of numerics or uh, dollar amounts or something. Sometimes we can think that way, uh, like, you know, Christ died for so many billions of sins and, and no more or something like that. It's not a matter of numbers or of finances. Uh, it's not a final financial obligation that we have toward God, nor can it be discharged by financial means to God. You know, your money's not going to help you in the day of judgment. It doesn't matter how much you have, no matter how filthy rich you might be. Oh, filthy rich. Maybe that says something. <laughs> um, but... It's, there, there's no substitute financially for a sin. Now, when we think of a civil penalty, you might get a ticket, and then you can make that right by paying the fine. And so there's a sense in which the financial thing substitutes for whatever wrong was done. But that's not what we're talking about here. It's, it's also not an illegal obligation. That is, sin is not a legal obligation that can be paid with money or, or, or a short amount of incarceration. It's a moral or ethical obligation. It's of a different sort of thing than finances or legal uh, matters per se. It's, a, it's an ethical thing. The level of offense and the party offended God and His holiness require life, the Bible teaches us, as a payment for iniquity. For God, merely overlooking sin is not possible. But the good news is that a substitute life is provided, is possible. In other words, financial, in financial terms, we couldn't think of paying God off. Let's say if I just give God a million dollars, if I've saved that much money, then I can get off the hook. No, but, so there's no substitute in that realm. But there is a substitute in the realm in which God does, in fact, require of us a life because the wages of sin is death. Any, any act or non-act, or word or attitude or desire that displeases God brings guilt. And guilt eventually brings what? Punishment. I say eventually because maybe not immediately, certainly uh, in the end of all things. Said another way, sin when it's full grown brings forth death, Right? Sin entered the world and death through sin, and ultimately uh, death is both a, a physical and a spiritual uh, sort or variety, and that's the debt that must be paid for sin. Now, everyone recognizes to some level or some extent that there are consequences for sin, some kind of consequences, at least for some things, criminal behavior that victimizes others. Many people recognize that's worthy of punishment. Uh, or unethical behavior that may seem generic or even victimless. At times, we, I'm saying we as a society recognize that some thing, some consequence has to be attached to that. Usually such considerations are focused on a human-to-human consequential level. Or sometimes people have this kind of a little spiritually elevated idea. I'm not saying it's spiritually good, but you know, not just on the human level, but spiritually speaking, they may have some idea of fate 
or karma or something like that. So there are consequences that people recognize, you know, that when you do something bad on the road, then the next thing that happens is you get something bad happen to you, supposedly. So that's where the focus is, humanly speaking. But the living and true God is real, and your sin also has an impact in His realm. What I'm trying to alert us to and remind us to is that our sin does not just have a horizontal impact. It has a connection to God as well. Just as it does in your family realm, sin has an impact in your church or in your society, so it does in the realm of God. And it's easy for us because God is invisible. Well, just set Him aside. Don't worry about that. Just think about the consequences that my sin have immediately to the person that I've wronged or to the atmosphere in the home or to the tension in the church or, or whatever. Well, what about God? Does He matter at all? Does He matter in this equation? Of course He does. So we come then to the marvel of divine forgiveness toward man. And uh, there are a lot of verses in Scripture, over a hundred of them, that use the word forgive and certainly more that have the concept. But let's turn to a couple of them. The last ones in the New Testament I've selected to focus on, starting in uh, the book of James, just to remind us a couple of principles of divine forgiveness. And these are things that you should be well familiar with. We're not, we're not treading on new territory here theologically at all. But again, the purpose of this message is to glorify God by extolling His forgiveness, helping us to be grateful to Him for this great thing that He's done for us. So James chapter 5 and verse 15, the Scripture says, and I'll just visit these quickly and then make some comments. It says, "...and the prayer of faith will save the sick." And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. He will be forgiven. Now, with this scripture, I just want to make sure that you note that it says that he will be forgiven. And I'm not focusing on the future tense of that. I'm focusing on the passive voice of that. He will be forgiven. By whom will he be forgiven? Well, the agent of forgiveness, the actor, is not stated, but I'm sure that you can uh, make a very educated guess as to who it is that we're talking about here in James chapter 5. Note that the verb is a passive verb to the recipient whose obligation is canceled. There's no act, no worthiness, no value, merit in the person receiving forgiveness that, deserve, that they deserve to receive that from, from God. So it's a divine passive, so to speak. First uh, John, well, we know this verse, but it's worthwhile pondering, especially at a table service. If we have iniquity in our midst, one with another, some kind of divisions or Schisms, as Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 11, reminded the church there of their need to get that straightened out. It says in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, there the Scripture's quite clear that the, the agent in the forgiveness is God. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It makes it 
plain and clear that He is the one who does the forgiveness. If you just drop down a few verses to chapter 2, verse 12, John says, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. Your sins are forgiven. So forgiveness follows on the Christian's confession of sin because Jesus, the one in whom the Christian lives, is the propitiation or satisfaction, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. 1 John 2, 2 says as much explicitly. It says, And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So each one of these verses address God as the one who forgives. Forgiveness follows upon confession of sin in the propitiating sacrifice, which is Christ Himself. It's not an abstract like idea. Sometimes maybe it's, I don't know, for people in the West or abstract, or maybe it's just my engineering brain. You kind of think of it in an abstract way. Christ Himself is the satisfaction for your sins, not merely an act that He did. Certainly, the act that He did is crucial, it's central, it's important. Otherwise, there would not have been, but it's in Him Himself. He provides the expiation, the appeasement. He Himself is that appeasement required for God to forgive our sins. And also, this 1 John 2, 12 portion reminds us of another feature of forgiveness. Not only is it divine in origin, it follows upon confession and repentance. It's because of Christ being the appeasement, the atoning sacrifice, but also, and it's, and it's a, that divine passive that we talked about, but also it's an action that once done carries a permanent ongoing effect. Perfect tense is very interesting in verse number 12. That tense we teach our Greek students is one of the most, uh, generally one of the most significant exegetically in terms of its meaning in Scripture. It says that there is an, an action that occurs and it combines two, two elements of, of, a, of what we call aspect or type of action. That first element is that the action occurred, and the second element is that it has ongoing results. It's not just like you're forgiven. You know, you, you pray, ask God to forgive you, to be saved. You, 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 you confess your sin, you repent, you turn to Christ, you acknowledge that He's Lord and Savior, and you're forgiven, and then you wake up the next day and... Oh, the forgiveness is dried up, it's run out, it's, uh, it's out of effect, it, it stopped working. No, that's not the case at all. We, our sins are forgiven, they stand forgiven, and with a continual truth to that forgiveness. Part of the marvel of it is that ongoing nature of it, and uh, when you confess a sin to God, whether it's initially at salvation or whether, you know, come now, Let's be realistic. We often need to confess our sins to God, do we not? When you confess a sin to God today, tomorrow, and He forgives you of that sin, guess what happens? Does that, does that forgiveness run out? No, it's, it stands. It keeps on. It's, 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 good, it's good still. And that's part of it. Part of the marvel, too, is that God forgives not just one or a few of sins of people who come to Christ. But listen to this in the Psalms. 
Just marvelous number of verses that I was able to glean uh, in my study here. Psalm 25, verse 18, it says, Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. All of them. He can ask that and God can do that. Psalm 85, verse 2, You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. All their sin. Or Psalm 103, verse number 3, it says, Who forgives all... Well, let me back up. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities. All your iniquities. It's a huge blessing when God does that. In fact, David says in Psalm 32, How blessed is the man, remember that portion? How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, whose sins are, or transgressions are covered or forgiven. What a blessing that is. God forgives even egregious sins against himself and against others. David, in that very portion, uh, probably reflecting on his own sin, deep sin in his life and his rule of the nation of Israel and his violation of marriage. The most egregious of sins God can and does forgive. Uh, Psalm uh, 78, 38. Psalm 78 and verse 38. The scripture says, But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. God standing ready to forgive because he's compassionate. He cares for us. He doesn't extend forgiveness, by the way, grudgingly. Uh, Psalm 86, verse number 5 For you, O Lord, are good and ready to forgive, abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. He is characterized by forgiveness in such a way that he could be called the God who forgives. That could be your name for God from time to time. God who forgives, like the God who provides or the God who heals, the God who forgives. Put that in your... uh, mind and and take it with you. Sometimes people, Christian people, act as if when they sin, they have to like hold back. They can't go before God because, I don't know, they're not ready yet or uh, there's something like there's this kind of implicit idea that God can't forgive that, or it has to go a certain length of time, or uh, I I haven't worked up enough, I don't know, something in order to convince God to forgive me. Please don't have that mindset. God stands ready to forgive. How much convincing do I have to do to get you to receive and accept that truth? Think of the story that the Lord told, the parable of the prodigal. And how for days and weeks and months and perhaps years, 
the father stood looking off into the distance to see his son if he's coming. And when he saw him finally come, he runs to meet his son. He's not sitting there like, hmm, I'll teach that lad. He's, he's waiting like this. That's the picture of our God. Stands ready to forgive. We can marvel about you know, how he does this, how much he does this, how ready he is to forgive, how he forgives all of our sins, how forgiveness goes on and on and on in that perfect tense kind of way. I don't know. To me, it just makes me thankful more and more when I think of it. I hope it does you as well. Psalm 103 again, verse number 4. It says, Who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. We uh, fear, we, 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 we have deep reverence and thanksgiving to God, and in fact fear God uh, because of His great forgiveness. He's just so kind to us. God's character now is so holy that the debt of sin is inherent. Uh, it's something that we simply can't get around or pretend away. And thus forgiveness is required to remove the debt. So God's inherent reaction towards sin or inherent, I don't know if I could say reaction, but his inherent stance, his inherent constitutional nature is such that when sin occurs, it immediately requires recompense. It immediately requires punishment. It immediately requires to be addressed properly. But his character is also so loving and so compassionate that forgiveness is readily available. So you can't sit there and say, man, God is mean because when people sin or mess up a little bit, you know, he's on their case right away. But when you say that, you forget that God is also ready to forgive right away by constitutional nature. He's not like an unappeasable tyrant who demands repentance readily but does not extend forgiveness easily. Rather, he has both. He demands repentance and he extends forgiveness. Not, not, one, not the second without the first, obviously because He requires us to confess, to, to repent, to turn away from our sin, to turn to Him in faith, to believe that Jesus died for our sins. What are you saying when you say that other than, boy, if He died for my sins, I sure probably shouldn't have much to do with them anymore, should I? That's why in faith we have the great turning of the believer and repentance away from sin and toward Christ, as 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 indicate. So, at this point, I thought of an, a possible objection. You know, you, you might think, well, if humans can forgive others without repentance on the other side, you know, the, the illustration is uh, somebody's committed a criminal act against me and in the victim statements in the court at the sentencing, I say, oh, I forgive that guy, even though he has made no expression of remorse or no apology or anything like that, I'd forgive him, like one-sided. And that correlates with what we talked about at the beginning about the kind of human-based, feelings-based 
uh, idea of forgiveness. And so people say, well, we can do that without the person responding properly or having any remorse. So why can't God do the same? When people talk about a feeling of forgiveness of this sort, they they really are speaking of a truncated type of forgiveness. Forgiveness is really a three-part thing. It's the offended party uh, ready to release the moral obligation of the other person toward him. It's that person acknowledging their sin. And then it's a meeting of the minds, I'll call it, where, you know, I'm sorry, I forgive you. There's a there's an, a mutual understanding that has come uh, between the two people after the sin was done when the confession and, and apology, the, the repentance and, and the uh, forgiveness is, is offered. So they exchange communication. You, this is how it is with God and us. God stands ready to forgive, but the party on the other side, there is some some thing, some requirement, some attitude, some spirit that must come upon them to recognize that they have done wrong and come to God and, in a sense, ask Him, apologize to Him to be forgiven. I'm I'm leaving out of this the whole, you know, I know that God opens the eyes of that person and grants them illumination and all that sort of good stuff, but just from the kind of external view God stands ready. We'll talk about that some more, but then the person comes to him. They have a a meeting of the minds. We call it this person expressing faith. God in his word telling them about his willingness and uh, uh, forgiveness that's been made available uh, to him. So that's three-part situation. So back to the question then, when people forgive, say, an unrepentant criminal, They're letting go of ill feelings toward that person, which is step one of that three-step process, but steps two and three have not occurred. And my contention is you can't criticize God for doing less than step one because He has done step one maximally. He has taken upon himself the ethical obligation of sin in the person and work of Christ, dying in our place for sin, demonstrating that he was so ready to forgive that he himself took the punishment due to the other party. So you can't argue, well, if we can forgive without the person uh, properly responding, why can't God do that? Well, God has done that only much in a much greater way than the person who's just you know, saying, I don't have any ill will anymore toward that person because why? I, I, I don't want to have bitterness eat me up and have that person living in rent-free in my mind for the next 50 years as they're sitting in jail rotting away and blah, blah, blah. It becomes a self-focused kind of feelings-based, again, forgiveness instead of the kind of forgiveness we're talking about in Christian theology, a kind of forgiveness that not only the person stands ready to forgive, but he's also done something to pay for that sin and to make it right. So instead, I might turn that question or criticism back on the criticizer and say, if God can stand ready to forgive like that, better than any magnanimous human being ever could, Why would you refuse to align your heart right to apologize to God for your sin and turn away from your sin in gratitude to Jesus who died for your sin? In other words, 
you're complaining that God didn't do step one, may I complain to you that you haven't done step two? What's wrong with that? Criticism. Just think about it. Now, as far as feelings go, uh, I'm fully willing to say good feelings should follow forgiveness. And that's part of what my message, the point of my message tonight, because debt cancellation and the feelings that come from it are, are informed and shaped by that truth. It's not a fake thing when God forgives you or just you know, writes it on a piece of paper and it's like a paper transaction that's, again, abstract or theoretical. If the truth is that sin debt is truly canceled, that you don't have to pay the penalty for sin, and it is in Christ, this is cause for, isn't it great rejoicing? Wow. If when we fail, we can go to God and ask forgiveness in Christ, and He's there as our advocate, and God promises to cleanse us and forgive us, how can we not feel strength and encouragement from that? We marvel because we have such a privilege. You know, we're not subject to fate or karma or some other impersonal force that determines our outcome. We have a real relationship with the sin-forgiving God. And that relationship is, is, again, renewed and harmonized and restored whenever we come to Him in confession and He forgives and cleanses us. Well, it's impossible in a message of this length to go over the whole doctrine of forgiveness, isn't it? There's too much. God is too great, but I would say, I would add to that, given what we've talked about, just to think now of the human analog of divine forgiveness, that is God forgiving humans, what about humans forgiving other humans? And as we've indicated already, some remarkable people do let go of bad feelings towards someone who has done them wrong. It's somewhat unusual, uh, especially in egregious cases of a criminal act against a person or family. Actually, it's kind of interesting because if you hear of somebody who says, I forgive this terrible criminal, you, you have in, in, in innately a response of, wow, that is gracious. But have you, heard, have you heard of a victim of a crime or a family of a crime who then, in, instead of doing that way, like pours out contempt and wrath on the person who's there on the other side of the, the divide there, they're giving their victim statement? Uh, and an opposite kind of feeling comes up. Like, how can they be so so angry, so mean? So, I mean, it it is going to be damaging to them. But where is the the ability? I know I'm not saying it's easy, it's hard. But there's something that says that doesn't quite sit right. It doesn't quite sit right. Anyway... um, But those aren't really the marvelous, most kind of amazing things that happen in human-to-human forgiveness. The really amazing kind of stuff is when a full transaction of forgiveness occurs between two people. The sinner apologizes, the wrong party is graciously ready to release the debt, and they communicate those stances with one another. The restorative result is so peaceful and enjoyable and gracious and kind. Communion is restored Sinful people continue to live in harmony together. That is beautiful. I'm not talking about criminals in courts and all that kind of terrible stuff. I'm talking about you and your wife, you and your parents, you and your fellow church members. 
when things don't go quite right and the, the, the abrasiveness increases or something has been done wrong or something you didn't agree with uh, that they did and you're upset, the, the, the really marvelous thing is when people can live together in forgiveness with one another. And, uh, and it should happen all the time, and it's a wonderful thing. It's a, it's a blessing. It's, it's very much different than the hatred that permeates our culture. I mean, how, how spiritual do you have to be to be hatred, filled with hatred, at rather, like our culture is? I mean, that's all it is today, isn't it? This group hates that group, and this person hates that group, and this person hates that person, and it's just terrible. Colossians 3.13 talks about Christ's forgiveness. This is the fourth to last verse in the Bible that mentions forgiveness, in fact, uh, at least explicitly by word. Colossians chapter 3, verse uh, 13, Paul encourages, exhorts us to bear with one another and forgive one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. And so Christ's forgiveness for, of us is the basis and standard of comparison for our forgiveness with others. As Jesus forgave. This is like when it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Yeah, that's a high calling. But here it's not an option. It's a moral obligation. In fact, a failure to meet this moral obligation of forgiving one another is an offensive act toward God, a sin. This is like the parable the Lord taught. I, I forgave you all of that debt, and then you wouldn't forgive that little bit to this other guy that owed you? You're a wicked and evil servant. If we were to act that way, then that, in other words, to act the way of not forgiving our fellow person when God the King has forgiven us, that would be an act that would require us to confess our sin to God and thus rely upon His forgiveness for our lack of forgiveness, right? To rely on that forgiveness that we won't extend that type of forgiveness that we won't extend to somebody else. Moved by that, we should be able to forgive our neighbors, to cancel the debt, to release from moral obligation that someone has toward us. And then you might ask, well, on what basis do we do that? I mean, there's no substitutionary sacrifice, is there, or place where the sins that are done against us are put. When you and your spouse have a thing... Where does that thing go? I mean, does it just go poof and it's gone? You just say, oh, well, we'll forget about it. We'll just erase it out of our little journal for the day, and that's good. It'll be gone. W what happens to it? Where, where is it put? Where, where is it after you confess and apologize and, and receive forgiveness? It seems, it seems like there's a basis. I haven't fully come to the, you know, a, a fully satisfactory way of explaining this to myself, but it seems that the basis in us for forgiveness is the same as the basis in God, and that is grace. The offense that somebody did to you, if your spouse did something to you or your, your parent or your child or whatever, the offense does not inherently deserve forgiveness. 
The person who did the offense doesn't inherently deserve forgiveness. Would you agree? We're not worthy in some way, but the offended party then, his response or her response has to be sourced in unmerited favor. If there's no merit on the other side, why would, where, where can your forgiveness come from? What's well, got to well up from graciousness toward that other person, which, you know, that's a definition of grace, unmerited favor. They don't merit that favor from you. And so, you know, your relationship, you may say, may indeed be worth sharing forgiveness, you know, but what about after seven times or 77 times or 70 times, seven times? <laughs> All those illustrated in Scripture in various places. So when we forgive, we behave like God or like the forgiving master we talked about or like Jesus. When they brought the paralytic to him, he said, you know, be of good cheer, what? Your sins are forgiven. So what happens to the sin done against us? Well, if the sinner transacts with God and and with us, then the sin that they've done against me is, in effect, taken by Christ. Think about the marvel of that. A sin that person A sins against B, then Christ takes the sin of A upon himself. And B can graciously forgive A and know that Jesus died for that sin and for that sinner just like he did for himself. I forgive you because Christ forgave me, and I can forgive you because Christ forgave you. And Christ paid for the sin done against me, and so I'm not going to hold that sin against you anymore. So in a way, the answer to my question question I posed a moment ago, where did the sin go? Well, it kind of went upon Christ as he bore it in his body on the tree. That sin done against me was also done against him, and I'm in him. I don't know, it just boggles your mind. It's a marvel, isn't it, this idea of forgiveness? So we receive grace and we exhibit grace, and this character trait has thus been shared from God to humanity. And you might say, well, it's hard. Uh, Yes, but God gives more grace. God gives more grace. He gives that grace to help you to be able to confess and to be able to share with others that grace that he has shared with you. Another marvel, God takes the grace of his own character and puts it into people and they exhibit it and that grace is multiplied and, 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 and exponentiated and passed on from one to the next. That's the glory of it. Well, that brings me to the end of the message for tonight and I hope that you're reminded of the glory of divine forgiveness and how it kind of percolates down to the human level as we receive the benefits of His grace. We can share that with others. And I hope that you will find good uh, application this week as you forgive. I don't wish that you have a lot of opportunities to do this, but you probably will despite our best wishes and attempts to avoid conflict, you'll probably have some opportunities to exercise forgiveness as Christ forgave you. We come to the table and we remember his death to effect that for us. Let's pray. And after I pray, then we will uh, 
go to, uh, as we call it, a private session, and uh, we'll have to bid you online adieu. Uh, until next time, God bless you and keep you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word tonight, for your kindness in uh, teaching us the doctrine of forgiveness. And I hope that some of the words that we've shared tonight as they reflect Scripture would be a, a, a matter of building up and not discouragement, but encouragement in the faith and a strengthen to remember the glory of forgiveness and thank you for it, Lord. May your grace be evident as it's spread abroad in our hearts that we would share it with others. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.